Well, good morning, everyone. I thought I'd stand down here than up there, because I probably look like a giant if I stand up there. <laughs> I know I have a keyboard to, uh, to cover half of me, but so. Um, my name's Dan Snape, if, uh, if you're not aware who I am, and normally I'm, I'm up there leading worship. I'm the worship pastor here, um, but Sean and the Richmonds are uh, away on the uh, college retreat right now, um, doing some teaching and preaching, so uh, once in a while they let me out uh, to preach a word to you. Um, in fact, I was just looking over at the, the Richmond row there. It's rather decimated right now. It makes me very sad. I'm like, oh. But Jonathan, Jonathan's holding the fort down, aren't you? <laughs> but no, it's a, real, it's a real joy and a pleasure to uh, be able to share some, some of the word with you, uh, to process some of it this morning, um, and just to see what, what the Lord might be speaking to us through his word this morning. Uh, we're in the second week of a series called Vote with your life, vote with your life. And we've, we've designed this to, to coincide with the election cycle that's going on right now. And really the, the goal, in a way, is to, to get us refocused on what's really important. Because it's really easy, especially with this election cycle, I think, to, to get sucked off into the political world and, and start getting dragged down with everything that's going on right now. Really, what we're trying to remind you here about vote with your life is that we've got to come back to Jesus We've got to come back to, to who he is and, and the offer that is uh, of hope that he has for us. Because otherwise, we're going to find ourselves just sucked into uh, this place of despair uh, and hopelessness. So, I, you know, I don't know about you, but anybody else just tired right now? Just, just sick and tired and weary of everything going on right now. Um, you know, you, we sort of feel it in the world, right? But especially with there's been something about this election cycle that I feel has dragged us all down. Um, and I never noticed this more, actually, than um, towards the end of my sabbatical that Sarah and I took over the summer. Uh, we were lucky we got to, to go to England for a couple of weeks. And um, I didn't really realize how much it was dragging me down until just being two weeks out of the country and kind of out of this political atmosphere. I was just like, oh. Right, this is what normal life feels like, you know. And, and of course, you know, the election has been covered in, in the UK as well, but just not, not with the same intensity that it's been covered over here. And so, and yet immediately when we landed back in Boston, uh, there was just this, you know, straight away you get off the plane and there's, you know, CNN on the TV or whatever, and you're just like, oh, you know. <laughs> so I think it's, it's safe to say that we are all just feeling really tired and weary. And it's sort of like, please, will November 8th come? Just, just one way or the other, please. Um, I do want to submit this to you, though. Um, there's an old adage that says, um, a nation gets the leaders it deserves. And we see this in the Old Testament. Um, there's plenty of times where the Israelites, they just keep wandering off the track, and God gets to a point where he's like, okay, you know what? You, you're going to get the leaders you deserve. And I want us to think about that this morning, that have, have we or will we be getting the leaders we deserve because of everything that's going on in our country right now? Now, I tread lightly, and I want to throw in a little disclaimer because as you probably realize and can probably hear, I ain't from around here. <laughs> and... I'm not actually a U.S. citizen, all right, which means I can't vote. And I, I tell you, you can probably see the disappointment all over my face <laughs> about that. I mean, I, 
Man, if I could vote. I still wouldn't know what to do. Um, so, I'm putting what I call my British disclaimer in. Um, I'm not an American, but um, in fact, uh, what your country calls me is a, is a, a legal resident. I have a green card. Uh, more, more precisely, I'm known as a legal alien. So if you've ever thought there was something a little strange looking about me, <laughs> I'll be your resident alien at the church. In fact, it's, it's part of what we're trying to introduce in our church movement, is every church has to have a resident alien. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But, so I can't vote, but I've lived here almost half my life. And I, I love this country. You know, I wouldn't still be here if I didn't. I love it. You know, I pay my taxes. You know, I've paid my dues. Um, but I don't mean I have a, a group of Jewish people I employ and, and pay them money. It's not what I'm saying. <laughs> but I, what I'm trying to say is I love this place. Okay? Uh, and my heart bleeds, as I'm sure yours does, when uh, we see what's going on right now. Um, and really the point is, you know, why can an Englishman preach to um, uh, an American church? And I, I love the fact that we aren't just an American church. We're a, a beautiful display of the nation's. But the fact that I can do this is because this whole issue before us is not just an issue of, of, of America, yeah. all right, or, or, or a nation or a leader. This is, this, is a, this is a God issue. It's a bigger issue than any country and any leader. And so we've got to look at it from a God perspective, okay, from a biblical perspective. And let's remember that God is bigger than any one nation or any one leader. Leaders come and go. Nations come and go. But our God is eternal, and he never changes. So as we come away from today's service, we're going to be looking at the passage of Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. And today we're going to be looking at idolatry. Idolatry. And also its opposite, worship, or true worship, should I say. And I'm hoping that we will come away today with a, with a better sense of um, what idolatry is, what idolatry looks like in our own lives, okay, because we all have some somewhere, and what true worship looks like. So um, let's turn to Colossians, and we're going to chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. We're going to read the whole passage, because I think it's good to soak ourselves in the word, um, I think it was Kirk Franklin, the gospel artist, said, you've got to know the whole book, not just the verse. And so we want to see the whole context of what we're looking at today. All right? So, this is Paul, the Apostle Paul writing. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked, and when you were living in them, But now you also must put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Thank goodness we don't have any of that in today's election cycle. (laughs) 
Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Amen. So let's just pray a moment before we get into this. Father, we thank you that we can... Do everything in your name. Lord, we thank you that you have given us a spirit of joy, of thankfulness, that despite our circumstances, we can always be giving thanks to you and offering everything we have to you. So we just pray that this morning uh, you would speak to us, Lord. Speak to our hearts. Bring your conviction, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So specifically, what we're looking at this morning, actually, is... um, Looking at verses five and six, all right, which um, which reads: Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. So, let's begin with a question: What what is idolatry? Well, put simply, it's misguided and perverted worship. It's misguided and perverted worship. So the first thing you'll notice there is that idolatry is a form of worship. Okay, we're all hardwired to worship. Don't kid yourself. If you think, well, I don't worship God. I, you know, I don't bow down to anybody. Yes, you do. It may not look like God, but there are things in your life that you worship. It's one of the main threads in the Old Testament, actually, is this, is this uh, constant uh, back and forth that Israel has with Yahweh. Where for a while they'll be good and they'll be following his ways and then they, uh, they fall off the beaten path and they get involved uh, with the other nations and their, their pagan worships and worshipping all their false gods and all that. And God has to, has to call them into line. There's a, a period of punishment and they come back, they repent. And it's kind of this cycle that, that permeates the, the, the Old Testament. Um, it's a huge theme, and it's also it's not just the Old Testament. It's, it's a huge theme in the New Testament as well. It's really a huge theme in the lives of believers because it's, a, it's really a matter of the heart. Idolatry is a matter of the heart. And what's interesting is the nature of idolatry never changes. Okay, Its form might, 
and the times you're living in might change. But its nature actually never changes. The nature of idolatry is to turn you away from God. It's a distraction. Okay? We have an enemy who loves distraction. And those distractions can be very appealing sometimes. That's why they're distracting. Right? You're like, well, that looks good. I think I'll just, uh, you know, God needs one of those, those crooks that pulls you back. But it's to distract you and to deny the reality of who God is. Uh, this theologian by the name of Peter Brunner who wrote a book called uh, Worship in the Name of Jesus. Um, and he talks about idolatry creating a false sense of reality. And just bear with me with this, uh, with this quote because it, it's really intense, but it, it really sums it up perfectly. Uh, Brunner, he, he says, The inevitable consequence of man's rejection of God's revealed reality... By the way, he's talking in the context of Romans 1 here, which talks about how the reality of God is really undeniable when you look around at creation. You know, that it's it's right there. God has spoken to us. But he says, The rejection of God's revealed reality will be that henceforth, utter unreality will replace reality and be regarded as real, and that absolute falsehood will replace truth and be regarded as valid. And we see that going on all the time right now, don't we? There, there There are things that today would not have been accepted even 10 years ago. And now, everybody's saying, oh, well, that's fine. Of course that makes sense. He goes on, when the reality of God is denied by man's unnatural negation, man must fall prey to the empty irreality of the idol, which now, as a pseudo-reality, replaces the reality of God and exercises weirdly, logically, an uncanny, godlike, demonic power over man. Think about that for a second. So what's going on is when you deny God, you are creating a false sense of reality for yourself. One of my, one of my friends on Facebook recently posted, we create our own reality. And I thought, no, you don't. You can get hit by a bus tomorrow. That's reality, but you didn't create it, you know? But we see a byproduct of this thought and this this uh, exchanging the lie, uh, exchanging the truth for a lie. We see this as a byproduct in our society today in so many ways. In so many ways, um, we have exchanged the truth for a lie. It's like this collective insanity has descended upon us. You know, what are some of the things we deny? Well, for many people, right, they deny the reality of God. They say, well, I don't think he exists. You know, that right there, you know, denial of the reality of God. We deny the reality of marriage as a God-given covenant between a man and a woman. We deny the reality of our gender. Think about that. What we're doing there is we are denying the creator the creative rights to his works. I want to give you an example for a, for a second. Think up, let's imagine that we're living a few hundred years ago and you are... Um, living in the times of Beethoven, the great composer. And he's just finished penning his fifth symphony, a masterpiece. And the ink's not even dry. And you pick up the score. And you turn around to Beethoven and you say, yeah, you know, the tenth measure, the, the strings there, I'm not feeling that. I, you know, I, I think we should alter a couple of the quarter notes here. Let's put a half note here. And, uh, you know, let's, um, hmm, that, no, I don't think that should be a B flat. That should be a B natural. Okay, so I'm just, I'm just going to scribble that out and change that. Okay, Beethoven? What do you think his reaction would have been? 
I think he'd have got pretty angry. And, and you know, Beethoven was quite a grumpy guy. You know, he'd, he'd have probably headbutted him with his big mop of hair. And, you know, he'd, be, he'd, he'd have been, are you insane? And we're just talking about a composer there, all right? Here we're talking about the living God, the creator of everything, the creator of you and I. So there's so many places where we deny this reality. We're living in a false reality when we embrace idolatry. And the the ironic thing is when we do that, we actually deny who we are, who we truly are. Because if if you've come to a place of accepting Jesus and that he is your Lord and Savior, then you've really come alive. That really is who we are. We're a new creation in Christ. That's the reality of who each and every one of you is in this room. Whether you've come to accept that or not, when you do come to that place, then you can truly come alive. So by embracing uh, idolatry, we actually erode our true humanity. Because to be truly human means to be created in the image of God. And when we're created in the image of God, that implies sonship and daughtership. We're children of God. And we are to emulate our parent. It's interesting, when we embrace these lies, that we get a false sense of identity. You know, God takes idolatry very, very seriously. Like I say, it's a huge thread in the Bible. Huge thread. And um, you want to know how seriously God takes idolatry? Well, have you ever asked yourself the question, why was God so much harder on Saul than he was on David? I've always wondered that. It's one of those questions, right? Saul was the first king of Israel. And um, he 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 was the anointed king of Israel. And yet... He fell into God's disfavor because God had asked him to take out the Amalekites. He said, take them out, don't leave anybody. But instead, Saul uh, left the king alive, and he took some of the the choice cattle and and possessions and treasures and things like that. Okay, not a good idea to go directly against what God told you, okay? But nonetheless, like, okay, well, what's going on here? When you look at David, the king who succeeded him, David was, you know, committed adultery, who's responsible for the death of the man whose wife he uh, committed adultery with. And yet, God is far more gracious with, with David than with Saul. And so I, I was battled with that question. I was like, well, okay, well, you know, what's going on here? Well, I want to turn you to First uh, Chronicles. All right? There's two books of Chronicles. We're going to go to the first one. And... Um, we're going to chapter 8, verse 33. And this is a great example of why sometimes it's not a good idea to skip all those boring genealogies. You know, you get through and you're like, oh, yeah, okay. Hey, you read a whole book of the Bible. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so check this out. We're in First Chronicles, chapter 8, verse 33. And it's, it, what's going on here is they're giving you a genealogy of Saul. All right? And it says... Ner became the father of Kish, and Kish became the father of Saul, and Saul became the father of Jonathan, Malkishua, Abinadab, and Eshbal. Oh, oh, hang on a second. Did you see that last name? 
Ish Baal. Anybody know who Baal is, or Baal sometimes as he's pronounced? Baal was a, a Canaanite god, god of fertility. He was actually the, the sort of the top god in the Canaanite um, religion. And they would pray to him for, um, for children and fertility and the crops. Eshbal means son of Baal. So here's Saul, the king of Israel, supposedly the true worshiper of God, of Yahweh. And he's naming one of his sons Eshbal. You don't name one of your sons that unless you're worshiping that God. And so Saul was what we call a syncretist. A syncretist is somebody who blends two or more religions together. So it's like I take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Oh, yeah, sure, I'll worship the one true God, but I'm also I'm going to kind of bring in a little bit of this and a little bit of that and create my own religion. Thank goodness that does not happen today, huh? <laughs> but you see what's going on there? It was a condition of the heart. Okay, God was far, uh, far more severe on Saul than on David because Saul's heart was not true to the Lord, and yet David's was, despite his sinfulness. I think that gives us all hope because we're all sinful, right? And we all do things that displease the Lord. But you know what? There's mercy and forgiveness when you stay the path. When you, when you say, Lord, I messed up, but you know what? There's nobody else I worship except you. So that's how seriously God takes idolatry. So what are some modern day forms of idolatry? Because it's not just about worshiping little stones and, and what have you, or there are people around the world who still do that, but it's, it's, it's kind of more subtle in our Western culture, all right? Perhaps it's money. Perhaps it's power. Perhaps it's a, a house or a car. Perhaps it's your work or your career. Maybe it's school, getting straight A's or academic qualifications. Perhaps it's sports. Sorry, had to go there. Maybe it's music. I have definitely struggled with that. Or some other artistic gift. Perhaps it's your body image, how you look. Perhaps it's your children. You know, Sarah and I, um, as we've gone through this season of just amazing joy and thankfulness to the Lord that we are um, finally having a baby, a prayer we've had to pray is, Lord, don't let this become an idol to us. You know, we've waited so long for this and, and came to a place of accepting it might not happen, that when it happened, your natural tendency is to make everything about this child. But we can't let ourselves go there because it will become an idol. And what idols do is they, um, they, they ultimately destroy you. They'll eat you alive. They'll eat you alive because they'll never be enough for you. They'll never be enough because there's only one thing that is enough for you, and that is God, that is Jesus. It's the only thing in this life or life eternal that will ever be enough for you. If you crave more money, it'll never, you'll never have enough money. Okay. If you crave academia and uh, exam results, you'll never feel intelligent enough. Okay. If, um, if it's sports, sooner or later, the team's going to let you down. Okay, they're going to lose. These idols will eat your life. You know, a huge, huge idol in people's lives today is, is sex and the promises that it supposedly brings, the emptiness that it supposedly fills. You know, Paul gives us a list of some of these vices, some of these idols in our lives. In verse 5, 
Look at some of them. We have immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed. In, they're in groups of five. So he gives a, a group of five in verse five, and then he gives a group of five other vices in verse eight. And then in verse 12, we get um, a group of five um, virtues, like vices and virtues. And this is a common thread in a lot of Paul's letters, is that he'll be like, don't do this, do this. Don't do that, do that. Once you were this, now you are this. Okay, and it's a, it's a technique that Paul implies a lot here. So, um, as I was preparing for this message, I went to the Greek text, because I find that when you do that, um, the meaning of words becomes really important. Because one of the things about the Greek language is that it, it has more subtleties than English. So a, a word can take on far more nuances than what we just would use in English. And, and sometimes it can shed some really interesting light on what the authors are writing about. So what's very interesting here is that the first three of those vices are all in some way related to some kind of sexual sin or immorality. So, for example, the word immorality in the Greek is porneia. And it doesn't take much of a rocket scientist to figure out what word we get from porneia. Second word, impurity, can mean a state of moral corruption, especially in relation to sexual sin and unnatural vices. And the third word there, passion. All right? we, we tend to think, well, passion's a good thing. If you have passion for your work and passion for the people, you, your family and all that, yeah, absolutely. But in this sense, the word passion used here um, has a nuance of to experience a strong desire, especially of a sexual nature. And interestingly, all five vices are summed up with the word greed. They can all be pocketed into some form of greed. Because even sexual desire, when it's inappropriate, I, in other words, outside of marriage, is greed. You want to take more and more of something and from somebody. And the word greed there, it means a strong desire to acquire more and more material possessions or to possess more things than other people have, regardless of need. So there's this really selfish aspect to greed, which, which um, throws everybody else under the bus and takes, takes what I need. And the reason I bring this up is Paul's trying to emphasize something here. He's trying to emphasize how um, deadly and destructive sexual sin is in our lives. Um, if you look at our culture today, it seems like we're going way more and more down that avenue. You know, even from just, you know, things that uh, are allowed to be seen on TV from, say, 10, 20 years ago. Um, and have you noticed that so many of the issues that divide us today, as a people, as a nation, politically, religiously, uh, are somehow connected with our sexuality? You know, we talk about the issue of gay rights, um, abortion, transgenderism, definition of marriage, Right, wherever you stand on all of that, they divide us. Because some people think one thing and some others think the opposite. You know, and it's, it, it's kind of tearing the church apart because the church is struggling with this as well. You know, it's interesting. One of the main reasons, I think, for atheism and one of the main reasons people turn away from God, well, there's a few reasons. Right? I think one of the big reasons is the issue of suffering and, and evil in the world. And, and why God seemingly doesn't act sometimes. Another sermon, another day. But I think another reason is that they want to 
uh, live a selfish lifestyle. They don't want to be accountable to anyone. How many times do we don't tell me how to live my life? <laughs> if, if you're a Christian, you can't live like that because <laughs> there's a whole book here that tells you how to live your life. And you can either submit to it and what Jesus teaches and the apostles teach, or you can go and live your own life. Um, the, uh, the philosopher and author uh, Aldous Huxley, um, his probably most famous work um, was A Brave New World, an atheist, and he wrote this. He said, The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. At least he's honest. Okay? He's basically saying, yeah, we made up this whole philosophy of meaningless, that life is meaningless, and that there's nothing after this life, and that once you're done, you're done, so make the most of this life and do whatever you want. He's basically saying, we made that up because we didn't want to be repressed in our so-called freedom, which is no freedom at all. They're just a slave to something else. And ironically, it doesn't do anything to negate the existence of God. That argument does not explain how you can say God doesn't exist. All it says is, I want to follow my own path. I want to do my own thing. And that's why I believe that there has to be a place called hell, because there are people who will make this choice. They know God exists, but they say, you know what, God's an inconvenience to my life, because I'm going to have to do things uh, that I don't want to do. And so I'm going to quietly disown God and say, you know what, I don't think he exists. And that just relieves me of all responsibility to live a moral life. You know, with its many benefits, technology uh, has also given us unparalleled access to all kinds of of things that really um, are destructive to our soul. You know, with our youth today, we were just talking about a youth retreat. Well, you know, the big craze now is sexting, right? Sending explicit um, content and pictures through their cell phones to each other. This is starting to become the norm. Apps like Tinder, which fuel the hookup culture of just meeting with strangers, having random encounters. The vast majority of people have sexual relations outside of marriage. Pornography is an epidemic. And statistically speaking, there are a lot of people in this room right now struggling with it. And I don't say this, please hear my heart on this, I don't say this in a condemning way, because you are looking at somebody right here who has struggled with many of these issues. But you're also looking at a man who has been set free. It didn't come overnight. It didn't happen easily. But I have been set free. And I want to encourage you that if you're somebody in this room right now struggling with one of these issues, first of all, if you're feeling kind of guilty or embarrassed about it or whatever, you know, that's a good thing. That's a good thing because that means the Holy Spirit is still convicting you. You're not indifferent to it. 
That's a good thing. And you don't need to walk in shame and condemnation. As Romans 8 tells us, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But you need to break the chains. And the way you do that is by confessing it to somebody, somebody you trust. You might be shocked at how many people struggle with these things and realize you're not alone. That you don't need to walk alone. You know what the devil likes to do? He likes to isolate you. Keep you on your own. Because if you're on your own, you're much easier to pick off. If you're surrounded by people who love you and care about you and will pray with you, that's what the church is about. That's why we are designed to be living and worshiping in community. We're not supposed to be hermit Christians. That is not the church. So what, you know, what it is, is there's a lack of accountability. Okay? And um, I was raised as Catholic, Roman Catholic in the UK. Um, and there are many things, many things I still love about the Catholic church. Um, but one of the things that was missing, at least how I was raised, was, a, was any kind of sense of accountability. Um, and so, you know, I went to Catholic uh, high school. And one of the things they would do periodically in, in high school is they would have uh, the priest come in and he would uh, offer confession. Confession is one of the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. And so the way they do this is um, the priest would be sort of next door in a classroom, and you get pulled out one, one person at a time to go and have confession with the priest. I always hoped it would happen during math. Uh, I, <laughs> you know. So, you know, imagine little, you know, 11, 12-year-old Danny Snape here. And um, you'd be sitting in class, and all of a sudden, it'd be like, you know, Daniel Snape! And you'd go off, right? And you'd go, go next door into the room, and there's uh, Father Morris, is his name. And he's kind of this, this short, kind of stocky guy. He's got this mop of red hair, kind of a reddened face, probably, um, you know, partook of the fruit of the vine a little too much. Um, <laughs> and there'd be a chair there. He'd be sat there, and you'd have a chair, and you'd sit down. He'd be like, all right, Daniel, how are you doing? All right, now, uh, how's not, how long has it been since your last confession? Uh, six months. All right, all right, all right. Well, um, have you been a bit cheeky? <laughs> you told a few lies. Uh, yeah. Have you been disobedient to your parents? Yeah. Said a few harsh words to your schoolmates? Yeah. Anything else? Um, no, I think you. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I will look, you made a great confession. All right, absolve you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Say two Hail Marys and an Our Father. Now, on your way. <laughs> And you'd walk out feeling on cloud nine. <laughs> that was so easy. Yes. All right. I didn't, have to, I didn't have to really own up to anything or get uncomfortable. It was just, you know, just nod your head and, you know, and, uh, you know, now I'm, I'm absolved of all my sin. I'm like a clean slate right now. I am pure. And I just had a simple thought. Back to square one. All right. But there was no accountability, right? Um, and it was only when I started getting involved with this church years ago uh, that Jeff Bianchi, who was the, the former pastor at CFCF, uh, began mentoring me, began discipling me. And as we got closer, he started asking me those awkward questions, those questions I didn't want him to ask. Those questions that <laughs> get you a little uh, hot under the collar, you know, you feel your face flushing out. Oh, man, did he just go there? Please, Lord, no. But it worked, and I got free of these things. And so can you. There's nobody beyond redemption. Nobody. Please remember that. Please remember that. I know, I just know 
Statistically speaking, there's got to be any number of you in this room right now that are dealing with shame and embarrassment and humiliation over this, and you don't need to stay there. You don't need to stay there. So because of these things, Paul says the wrath of God is coming. All right? Wrath of God is not something we like to talk about much. We like to talk about God's love and compassion and, and graciousness and forgiving. and Absolutely. But there is a wrath, wrathful side to God. And when you think about it, um, there has to be. Because um, wrath is a necessary component of God's holiness. For God to be completely holy, he has to be offended and angered by sin and evil. All right, there is such a thing as righteous anger. You ever, you ever, um, we, we can feel this sometimes. You ever you know, read a report on, say, the atrocities ISIS is committing? And you get angry. You're like, oh, you know, right in that moment, you're not thinking, Lord, would you just find a place in that heart? You're thinking, give us some Sodom and Gomorrah on those right now. You know, I'm not saying that's the right thing. But in the moment, there's that feeling of like, this is not right. So for God to be completely holy, he has to be offended and angered by sin and evil. God's wrath is a component of his justice. Justice involves punishment for wrong. But the good news is we don't have to walk in the wrath of God. When you submit yourself to him, when you surrender to him, when you say, Jesus, I'm laying it all down. I'm putting those idols down. Let's melt those down. Let's let's throw them away. And Lord, you are my only focus and center of worship. So what is worship? It's the antithesis to idolatry. Worship is the cure to idolatry. Worship is the more cowbell to I've got a fever. One of the best descriptions I heard of worship was really simple. It just says, worship is telling the truth about God. That's what we did this morning. That's what we did when we sang all those words. We were declaring truths about God, who he is and his goodness and his mercy and his love. So worship is telling the truth about God. On the flip side, confession is telling the truth about ourselves. And it's not just about singing or praying or doing good deeds. Those are all great things. But actually, worship has to be a way of life. It has to permeate every second, minute, and hour of your life. Do you realize that everything we do can be a form of worship? can be an act of worship to the Lord? That's really what he's saying at the end of this passage we just read. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Worship is a lifestyle. And most importantly, worship is born through relationship with our Creator. You want to learn how to worship the Lord? Just spend time with him. Make some time. Cut out some time every day. Say, Lord, this is you and me time. And you'll find yourself talking to Jesus more and more. Just riding in the car. Getting on the bus. Down the supermarket. Whatever. You see, when properly understood, Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. Religious gives you a set of rules to follow, a checklist. Tick the box, do this, do that, and you'll get your way to heaven. No, Jesus is saying, forget the rules, just follow me, and I'll give you a new rule of life. I'll give you a new way of living. Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. 
So in conclusion, we all have idols in our lives. It's not a question of if you have, it's of what you have. And Jesus is challenging us to lay it all down and follow him. He challenges us to live in the fullness of who God made us to be. And that is a life that is devoted to him. When you devote your life to him, he'll give you all the life you could ever want. So I want to invite the worship team back up. And um, we're a little bit short on time, but I just, um, one of the things I wanted us to dig into this morning as we respond to the Lord, right? It's a time of response. That means ask God into your heart, Lord, how do you want me to respond to this? Okay. Is ask the Lord to show the places of idolatry in your life. Ask him to reveal them. And actually, there's a, there's a very easy litmus test. Just ask yourself a question. If there was something you, would, you lost today or lost tomorrow and could not live without, you feel like your life is over, right there's an idol. And I want to invite some of our, our, um, our faith group leaders, um, some of the staff, just to come forward to, to be here as people to offer prayer. And you don't just have to be a faith group leader. You can be anybody who wants to pray for each other. But what I want you to do is I, I, I want you to... Um, if there's something just weighing you down, that you feel like you have a dark secret that nobody's going to understand, that nobody is going to uh, get, I just want to encourage you to come forward. Ask somebody to pray for you. You know, even if you're not ready to share what it is, just say, I need your prayer. There's something in my life that is, is holding me back. You know, in a funny way, right, we should all be making our way forward as we, as we worship here because I know that we all have idols in our life. So I just encourage you, submit it to the Lord and see what he says to you as we worship for a few minutes.